Well, this has been, a, been quite a weekend for many of you. Friday night, while lots of people were out in their neighborhoods collecting candy, we had our harvest party here at the church. And it seems like everyone, at least in the time that I was here, was having lots of fun. So I want to thank all the people that were involved in organizing that, Jesse and Dave and all those uh, that helped as well, along with our youth especially as they helped and those that were here for setting up and taking down and everything else. Thank you for doing that. For some of you, I've just recently come to understand from, of course, from the ultra-reliable and unquestioned source that is Facebook, that the transition between October 31st and November 1st marks the unofficial beginning of Christmas decorating. That's apparently when you're allowed to start. I never knew that. Uh, For some of the men, not sure if they still do this, but October 31st, actually I am sure that they still do this because I saw a couple starting already. The transition between October 31st and November 1st marks the last day that you will shave the area between your nose and your upper lip. Much, I think, to the dismay of some of the wives that are here, but we are now into Movember. (laughs) So there is lots going on this weekend. But October 31st is also important for another reason. 497 years ago, on October 31st, a monk named Martin Luther nailed a piece of paper onto a door at a castle, the front door of the castle, in in a place called Wittenberg, Germany. And that piece of paper, on which he wrote what we call 95 theses, or 95 uh, uh, really articles of debate, with the Roman Catholic Church, sparked what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And so October 31st is, is monumentally important for, even for our church. Our church would not exist as it does without the events of October 31st, 1517. This Reformation started in Germany, but it soon, soon spread uh, into Europe and into England. And when the Puritans came to America... Uh, Protestantism came to North America with them. And all of that was based on a renewed understanding of the Bible, emanating from wrong understandings and traditions that had gradually, gradually snuck into the church by the time of Luther. It was as he opened up and studied the Bible, rather than just uh, blindly accepting traditions, that he realized that they had gotten it all wrong and were depending Among other things, we're depending on works to merit the righteousness of God alone, in opposition to songs like we just sung, by which we receive salvation through faith alone, by grace alone. And it's in part because of Luther that you could even follow along in your Bible, in English, when I read it just a few minutes ago. There are many legacies of the Reformation, things we do in church that can be traced back to what happened on October 31st, 1517. But most of that has to do with being able to access and to understand the Word of God. And what Luther started to do, besides translating the Bible into the common language, which for him was German, was to look at the teaching of the Roman Church and to be able to discern where their uh, traditions matched the biblical accounts and to discern where they went sideways from the Bible. And it soon became obvious that even though he never... Uh, initially set out to divide from the Roman church, what Luther came to see in his studies had some major and irreconcilable differences from the traditions that marked 
the Roman Catholic Church. And, and these weren't minor differences. They were central issues, like the authority of the Scriptures alone and the meaning of the Lord's Supper and baptism and the worship of Mary and, and whether we can pray for the dead and how sinners receive the righteousness of God. And, and because of these differences and because... Uh, on the one hand, the Roman Catholic Church stood firm on its traditions, and on the other hand, Luther stood firm on his convictions. The church divided into, into the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And now, of course, we have lots of different denominations that would think of themselves as Protestant. And even within the Roman Church, there's a, there's a range of expressions too. But I want to point out here that that uh, this is one of the things that, that churches unite over is a common set of beliefs or a statement of faith. When you join the church, one of the things you should ask is, is what is it that you are joining? Or more precisely, what is it that they believe? And what the church believes about the Bible should align what you have come to believe about the Bible. The fact that there are so many denominations is a topic that people will ask a lot about, and it's a valid question, um, and it's valid because ultimately there is not going to be any denominations once we get to heaven. But denominations aren't necessarily a bad thing, because they usually begin because of people being convicted by their study of God's word. Their, their convictions can make them separate from one group or, or to join one group. And so if their convictions are based on a sound study of the scriptures and, and maybe even for you in which you come to a firm set of beliefs, joining or separating is not necessarily bad. Now, lots of us are, are just born into a certain church, uh, but somewhere down the line, somewhere back in your ancestry, um, someone came to believe certain things about the Bible and they aligned themselves to a particular group. It'd be an interesting thing for you maybe to look back and, and to find out how you came to belong to a Protestant church of some kind. Well, so far in our study on being joined to the church, we've talked about the fact that you gain entrance to the church through conversion or salvation. You identify with the church through baptism. And now we want to think about aligning with the church through what's come to be known as a statement of faith. Now, we can start out by saying that salvation and baptism are both very obviously in the Bible. But a statement of faith, well, the Bible doesn't really say anything about that, at least using those particular words. And, and that's true as far as it goes. There, there are lots of places that talk about the importance of sound doctrine and the importance of believing the right things about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the Bible, about the church, Etc. And so we could, at, ver at the very least, say that uh, confessions of faith, while now not explicit in the Bible, are inferred throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament as well. In the New Testament, it really starts out with Jesus himself when he asks his disciples in Matthew 16, 13. You can turn there if you'd like. Matthew 16, verse 13, he asks them a question there. He says, who do people say that I am? First, he actually starts out, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he starts off with that next question. Once Peter gives them an answer that some say you are this and this and this, 
He says, who do you say that I am? And so right from the earliest followers of Jesus, it's important for people to be able to articulate who Jesus is. In order to follow Jesus, it's important to have a right understanding of Jesus. And you'll see there that Peter replies with uh, what Jesus said is only God could have told him. It's a God-inspired, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now what's interesting about that conversation is that right after Peter makes this, let's call it a confession, Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's actually the first, very first mention in the New Testament, in the Bible, of the word church. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so you see here that Peter makes a confession of faith and, and Jesus immediately introduces the concept of the church for the first time. Now we're going to say a lot more about that passage in coming weeks, but we can see here the immediate connection between a, a right confession and being part of the church. A right belief about Jesus is a necessity in order to belong to the church of Jesus. Another way to think of it is that a church is comprised of those that make a true confession of Christ, of who Jesus is. So a statement of faith is really what we rally around. It's what we unite around. It's what holds us together. So in order to become a member of this church, of our church, you have to have at least read our statement of faith and to sign something that says that you agree with it. In order for me to be a pastor at this church, I had to be able to defend our statement of faith. And I, had to, I have to sign a form every two years reaffirming my uh, commitment to, in the words of that reaffirmation, to submit and promote, or submit to and promote our statement of faith. So my aim today is not to go through our church's statement of faith. Now, if you're interested, I've printed it there on the back side of the sermon notes in a very small font so I could fit it in. And we may teach through this at, at some point. We're actually working on developing a membership class where we're going to go through this as well. But for today, I just wanted to talk about why it's important that we align ourselves around a statement of faith. What's the big deal about being aligned to something like, like this? Isn't this just something that's, uh, you know, for the more theological types? Or, uh, or you might be asking, how does this apply to my life? Well, I would say that even though this is not something we expect you to refer to or have memorized, I just want you to, uh, wanted to highlight today the importance of knowing what you believe and what we believe as a church. I think we'd all agree that what we believe matters. We come into the Christian life through believing. We call ourselves believers. So what we believe matters. It's our belief that you, unites us and, and defines us and distinguishes us. So we saw in Matthew 16 how it was important for the followers of Jesus to have a right confession of Jesus. But the Bible, by far, elevates the importance of a right confession about who Jesus is so that we are not led astray. That's the main point. He doesn't want... 
Christians to be led astray, so they need to know what they believe. A right confession almost serves more to distinguish a church and to protect a church. It, it becomes kind of a measuring stick so that when people, or when, when you might hear people say something about who Jesus is, we have something, almost a, a, a template of sorts, that the church can use in order to compare those claims. It seems that the New Testament writers, when they write to churches, almost assume that contrary claims about Jesus are going to be a prevalent reality. We're going to come face to face with counterclaims, wrong claims about Jesus all the time, and so we need to be prepared so that we can answer the question of who Jesus is. And if that's the case, then churches would be wise to know what they believe. So, in Galatians, for example, Paul actually really, we could say he really lays into the church there for not being ready for that kind of onslaught against the gospel. So, Galatians chapter 1. Just look at Paul's introduction here in in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. And they want to distort the gospel of Christ. The church's problem there in Galatians is that they weren't solid on what they believed. And when someone else came along with a distorted gospel, uh, they weren't prepared for any sort of defense of the true gospel. And just like that, they were going in a different direction. And so later on, in, in, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? He says, don't go back there again. You've learned something different. You've you've learned who Christ really is. Don't go to a different gospel. 1 John is another place where we could go that shows the importance of knowing who Jesus is and that he's God, that he he came in the flesh. And there's lots we could go at in 1 John to look at that. But I just want you to go to Hebrews 13, verse 9. It's kind of a summary there. It says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Do not be led away. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. So whether it's Paul or it's John or or whether it's uh, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know the identity of who wrote that. Every New Testament writer warns about the importance of having a true understanding of God and of Jesus and of salvation and of the church, etc. We could add two more writers to that list two more New Testament writers to see the importance of being able to distinguish true from false and the importance of knowing and holding firm to the true gospel. I want to look quickly at both Peter and Jude. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And like I said, we're also going to be looking at that small little letter just before Revelation called Jude. And in both of these letters, the writers give some very serious warnings to the church that false teachers are a reality. And because of that, they really need to know what they believe. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, 
verses 1. I'm just going to read the beginning, up to the beginning of verse 3. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Stop there. And after that he just goes on to talk about the judgment that's coming to those who who will lead people in the church astray. But just notice a couple of things here. First, this is written to Christians in a church. And these false teachers are going to show up, it says, among the people. There's a constant threat, and lots of times it comes from within. Of course, this is one of Satan's strategies. False teachers and teachings that arise from within the church are more likely to be believed, right? The kind of that kind of deception is, is far more subtle. And so if Satan can attack from within, he'll be more effective at drawing people astray. People from within should be more believable. And we can see this throughout history and even today. There, there are false gospels all over the place, usually attached with false promises. The most deceptive one these days seems to be the prosperity gospel. Health and wealth, name it, claim it, whatever moniker you want to attach to that. That's just one example of threats that come from within the larger church. There are spiritual, I guess we could call them spiritual terrorists, lurking. We need to be on our guards. But look there at their method of operation. It says they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So they come in secret. These are not obvious. They're subtle. And their, their teachings sort of worm their way in, almost unnoticed. They almost sound right. And those are the most dangerous kinds. Lots of times they'll play on people's emotions. And Satan's no dummy. He knows that in our day and age we're, we're quick to be tolerant and we're very slow to want to question people. But make no mistake, these kind of teachings that are being introduced are ultimately destructive heresies. They have the potential to destroy people's faith. Faith, They're damning. And the secret and destructive heresies are, are connected, did you notice, to Jesus Christ. And so some of the prosperity teachers that I talked about before, I hope most of you can see through that stuff. They're kind of out there, you know, a bit of a distance away from us. But it's these other teachings that seem so right that can bring sort of a slow declension but can ultimately lead to destruction. It can be things like overemphasizing the sentimental aspect of God's love where people are told that God loves you no matter what. That you can, just, that you can come just as you are. Well, there's an aspect of truth to that, isn't there? Really a very important part of God's character, God's love. His love lifted me. We, we sang about that this morning. But when you look at those sort of things, those sort of sayings more deeply, it, 
it actually underemphasizes God's wrath against sin, and it undervalues the depth of Christ's sacrifice as seen on the cross, what we just celebrated. In other words, it's denying the master who bought them. So come just as you are starts to mean stay just as you are. Jesus accepts you no matter what. You don't need to change. And the long-term effect of that is that the church eventually be- starts to become worldly. They, the world would say progressive. And it starts to accept and then adopt the world's standards. Sin gets downplayed and, and, and love or, or tolerance or acceptance, uh, embracing of anything and everything, becomes the dominant virtue. And if you have any doubt that these, thing, uh, these things could slide in that direction, you just need to attend one of our mainline churches. You hear a little truth, lots of social justice and doing good works. But it can also be things like aberrant conceptions of God's forgiveness and of the right of those that have been offended to decide the kinds of punishment that ought to be meted out. If, if there's anything that denies the master who bought them, this is it. it it's at best a fault, faulty and mistaken understanding of the blood-bought forgiveness of God and at worst, an outright denial of how the gospel applies to them. This is destructive, and it can lead to great harm. It undermines the gospel. The gospel is about how God forgives those who repent and who trust in Christ, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. He lays the punishment for our sins on Christ, and then he keeps forgiving those who keep sinning as long as they keep repenting. Well, we could go on, but I want to just head over to the little book of Jude and just focus on these two verses. Jude might not be a a book that you've studied a whole lot, but this passage that I read from 2 Peter 2 and the verses I'm going to read, actually the whole letter of Jude, is uh, they sound very familiar to one another. But while 2 Peter 2 points out the warning of false teachers, Jude actually gives uh, the solution. How do we deal with them? gives the remedy. And Jude points out that the most effective way to guard against the false prophets and teachers that secretly infiltrate the church is for the church to be very firm on what they believe. So like I said, these two passages sound a lot alike. They, they warn about the same sort of thing. But the difference is, as one commentator put it, the difference is that in Second Peter, uh, Peter is warning the church there that, that false teachers are going to come into the church. He's predicting what's going to happen in the future. In Jude, they're already there. They're already in. You you can hear that in in Jude's words there. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have already, we could say, it's present tense, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So certain people, certain persons have already crept in unnoticed. They're in. They've gotten into the church. We have all these kinds of fears in North America these days, these fear that they're here, right? First, it's with the Ebola virus. The big fear is that it's, 
this virus has now made it from Africa into North America. And we have the same fear with, with ISIS, right? Islamic State of Iraq, I think that's what it stands for. Uh, they're not only in Iraq and Syria anymore, they're now in the U.S. and in Canada. Well, that's sort of what Jude is saying here. These, these false teachers and prophets, these, these spiritual terrorists that Peter warned about, they're in the church as he writes this. They've made it in. They're there. And then you see the same issues in 2 Peter 2, there in Jude verse 4. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What, whatever false thing it is that they're bringing into the church, and we don't know exactly what it is here, it never tells us, but it's an attack on the lordship and the work of Jesus Christ. And an interesting side note in both Second Peter and Jude, you might have caught this, is that these false teachings are somehow connected with sensual and immoral practices. So how does Jude propose that the church deals with this imminent threat? What should the church do? How should the church act? Well, look back at verse 3. This is really good. Beloved. So this is his instruction to the church that he loves. He says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, you can see here, Jude really wanted to write to them, celebrating what they had in common, what, what they believed about salvation. To celebrate their common understanding of the gospel. He, he, he was trying to celebrate their like-minded beliefs. But when he looked at what was going on in the church and, and when he notices who had wormed their way into the church and what they were teaching, well, that changed his plans. Changed what he was going to write. Although I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what starts is Jude's eagerness to write about what they had in common now has now turned into an urgency asking them to contend for the faith. It's a call to contend for the true gospel. It's a call to turn away from all new teachings as good and as right and as gracious as they may sound and to go back to what they learned at the beginning. And not only to go back to it, but to contend for it, to, to stand up for it, to fight for it. Jude knew that his role was to send out a warning to the church. He had the role of a watchman or, or a lighthouse. Watch out, church. There are, there, there's icebergs and, and there's boulders and, and rocks in those waters or in those teachings. They'll shipwreck your faith in Jesus Christ in the true gospel. Watch out. Well, Jude goes on in the short letter to expose these certain persons. And his intent there is to remove any influence or authority they may have somehow gained or, or, or weaseled in for themselves. He loved these believers. He cared about their spiritual safety. He, he doesn't want them to lose their common salvation, this, this precious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he warns. He exposes. He calls to action. And the way to do that is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He wants them to be able to defend the truth. So today, I, I just simply wanted to point out that one way for us to do that, in this age when, when the truth is downplayed and when tolerance is heightened, in this age when the church seems to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, one way to, to be prepared to expose falsehood is to know what you believe. And to know what we believe. 
And one way to know what we believe is to have a statement of faith, something that we can go back to when we're challenged in regard to our faith, when we're challenged um, by people that might come to our doors and promote something that sounds almost right about our salvation, about Jesus himself. We have to know which Jesus you're actually following. Is it the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Is it the Mormon Jesus? Is it the Muslim Jesus? Which Jesus are we following? And a statement of our faith helps with that. So a statement of faith is there to assist us. It's there to help us know in a comprehensive and a clear and a concise way how to put the teachings of the Bible together. So this is not the Bible, but it's trying to put the Bible together in regard to the authority of the Bible, the person of God, person of Christ, person of the Holy Spirit, salvation, church, um, how the world is going to end, those sort of things. And, and for our church, our statement of faith is the, the document that holds us together and that sets us apart. It ensures that we're all saying the same things, that we're all believing the same things, and that we can portray to the world what Jude describes as a common salvation. So when someone makes a commitment to belong to the church through membership, by virtue of joining, they, they align themselves to our common set of beliefs, to our statement of faith. All right, we'll talk more about our commitment to the church and how to join the church in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Thank you for granting us the faith to believe in your Son. We thank you that that faith is, is a free gift of your grace. Lord, we recognize again as we sing, as we pray, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we hear from your word, that you were so kind to open our eyes to be able to behold your Son to be able to see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Help us not to, I don't know, seek new knowledge or, or new experiences, but, to, but help us to grow and, and to deepen in our knowledge of what you have revealed to us in your word. For it's in your word that that we can be able to discern true from false, right from wrong. And so we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of it and in our love for you. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word and deed. Amen.